This is the I Read Comic Books Podcast. I am your host, Mike Rappin. Joining me this week for episode 302, Two Teenagers with Proportional Strength of a Spider, Brian Murray. Hello, Peter. <laughs> and Paul Chasley. Face it, Tiger. You just hit the jackpot. <laughs> we did it. Thank you. Uh, this has been episode 302 of I Read Comic <laughs> Books. Uh <laughs> Uh, thank you guys so much for joining me today to talk comics. I'm so excited to be here. Uh, before we get into things, we have an IRCB hangout coming up on October 23rd at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard. You should be there. Be square. Uh, come talk comics with us as we shift things around and try to just, you know, do a little bit of a talk show style hangout. It's my my new favorite thing to do with these Discord studios that we do. That's going to be on our Discord again at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard on October 23rd. Tell me what your Halloween costume is going to be. I want to know. But let's get into things. Let's talk about comic books. Let's talk about the entire reason that we're here today. And that is to ask these two questions. How have you been? How have comic books been? Let's start with you, Brian. I've been good. Uh, I have not done a whole lot of comic book reading. Uh, There have been some new video game developments in my life that have occupied most of my time. Sure. I beat Metroid Dread in a weekend. That was fun. Oh, nice. How was it? It's really good. Uh, It only took me about... 12 hours to play all the way through but i okay. also didn't bother like getting all the gear and pickups and stuff because some of it's really hard and i get frustrated easily understandable understandable i've also been playing this little uh in indie favorite uh it's called final fantasy 7 mm. and i Never don't heard know why people are talking about this more <laughs> yeah yeah like, <laughs> even i've heard nah, of this I, game so <laughs> I, I picked up the uh the remake a while back so i'm finally getting around to playing that and it's it's a little not for the hype so that, cool. but that that remake is only like part one of three or five or something right it's part one of question mark okay there's, a, there's okay. at least two parts gotcha gotcha which is a little frustrating i didn't know that going in but i also like i, I feel like i've gotten my money's worth already so i'm not that mad about it well it sounds fun yeah I did manage to sit down this morning and read uh, Hawkeye Volume 1, My Life as a Weapon. Yo! Uh, fin- again, finally, this little little unknown thing that nobody ever talks about. <laughs> uh, this is, of course, the Matt Fraction, David Aha run. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I was inspired, I mean, one, because I've been told it's great for the last seven years of my life. Mm-hmm. But there's also the Disney Plus series coming out next month. And it, from what I read in this first volume and what i've seen in the trailer it seems like this is going to be pretty close to what we get hell yeah uh and yeah i I mean i can see why this is such a classic you know the the writing is very good it's it's very like quick and snappy you know Mm -hmm. i particularly like the fact that clint starts saying bro when he's around the (laughs) uh the tracksuit draculas yep yeah like he just can't help himself you hear it so much i (laughs) Maybe this is just like a weird thing in my head, but I was definitely reading all of his dialogue in like a Boston accent. Yeah. Yeah. That makes yeah. sense. Like I can, you, you can see it, right? <laughs> absolutely. I mean, the way that he's pounding coffee. Absolutely. Uh, but yeah, I mean, the, the line work is not what I would normally look for, but I think it works super well, especially with the very minimal like shading and the, the limited color palette. It really came across as like a, a newspaper cartoon sure Mm -hmm. yeah yeah i think aha like really leans into the flat style of this series Mm -hmm. more so than in any other book that i've i've seen him do recently (laughs) even something like the seeds that he he put out most recently didn't have as flat of a feeling as this it almost feels like this book should be printed on that that like 
type of like gritty paper that you get like with the ed uh what's his name ed pisker like mm. x-men grand design books yeah like mm-hmm. that that type of really gritty paper i'd love to see hawkeye printed like that because this I, I totally agree with you brian it's like a newspaper feel oh yeah that's uh it's a good book and <laughs> if you like me have slept on it for seven years uh maybe it's time to grab it <laughs> I, I did see in Kelly Sue DeConnick and Matt Fraction's newsletter that they're putting out a like whole collected paperback edition that's going to be like 40 bucks of the entire run, nice. Um, nice. including a like the annual that they did and a Young Avengers one shot that was all about Kate Bishop. So if you're looking to just continue reading that, you want to have it all in your home, you can get that that nice big bad boy there. Um, I think it's only like 24 issues total, so it won't be like too huge of a shelf burden. That that one shot might be what was in the back of the trade paperback I read. Gotcha. Was it? I think it was like Young Avengers six or something. Yeah, I don't know. It was all about Kate Bishop, like losing her boat back to Hawkeye and then stealing it back. Mm. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I definitely. I mean, I like this whole series, but when it get to the second volume and you get more Kate Bishop stuff, I really enjoy that. Especially the weird issues where you're reading it, and I'm pretty sure it's just Matt Fraction doing his Rockford Files fanfic with Kate Bishop instead of <laughs> Rockford, you know, Jim Rockford. It's fascinating how weird that book gets at times. Yeah, for sure. That sounds awesome. I mean, I, Brian, I'm glad that you're you're finally getting on the hype train. I know <laughs> I feel like, you know, you're ty- one of the type of people that every time someone suggests it to you, you put it off a couple months. Yep. And I think no one had suggested it in the perfect amount of time. So this all worked out really well. Yeah, I just have time <laughs> to forget the hype. So yes. that I, could, I could properly embrace it <laughs> there you go exactly yeah. exactly uh well paul what about you how have you been how have comic books been uh i've been great i'm i'm happy to report that it's finally feeling a little more autumnal here in west michigan um it's uh the the leaves are starting to change a little bit we get some crispness in the air i have to start wearing a sweatshirt when i go outside i'm making a lot of stews at home so again if you have any good vegan chili recipes please send them to us we need them over here at the ircb compound um, for for winter for fall yeah send them over ircbpodcast at gmail.com we will take any and all vegan chili recipes <laughs> cannot guarantee we will make them but we will certainly try yeah I, I, we appreciate the thought um as far as comics go um i've read a few things uh, again i have massive piles of comics piling up around my apartment but i've trying to make a small dent in some of them i did go to the library recently and i know mike you talked about the show changing directions a little bit or shaking up the show a little bit after episode 300 yeah, I really took that to heart, and I read uh, a manga. Am I saying that right? Manga. Oh, what? <laughs> Someone put an alarm in. Hey, Xander, put an alarm bell in this. What the hell's happening? Exactly. <laughs> Things are weird. Uh, no, no. I uh, was at the library. This book caught my eye. It's uh, Tono Monogatari by Shigeru Mizuki, um, and uh, it kind of caught my eye mainly because I like the aesthetics of it, and also it's just one volume in, as opposed to you know number 47 of an ongoing manga series. Uh, right. You know, it's a um, standalone book. It's actually an adaptation of the Tono Monogatari, which was a collection of Japanese folk tales that was published way back in like 1910, I believe. And the introduction to this book explains that that book is sort of like the, the Japanese version of the Grimm's fairy tales, where it's a collection of you know, local folk tales that were sort of accumulated and collected uh, as a way of preserving them. You know, at a time when Japan was becoming very modernized, they're trying to hold on to this traditional mythology and mm-hmm. um, uh, folk t- folklore. And then uh, Shigeru Mizuki, um, the famous manga artist who's like one of the early pioneers of manga uh, after World War II, he 
really loved that book and he wanted to adapt it. And he did about, about 10, 12 years ago. No. Yeah, yeah. I mean, early 2008, 2009, adapt a lot of these stories. And then this collection was published earlier this year in English by Drawn and Quarterly. I really, really enjoyed this book. Again, it's it's a series of small little stories that illustrate the Japanese folklore about yokai or mm-hmm. you know monsters or gods. And uh, they're quirky little stories. Uh, Mizuki's art style, when I think of manga, I think of like a lot of motion lines and a lot of people yelling, you know? <laughs> so this is very different. <laughs> Again, that's I mean, my limited exposure to manga. But uh, sure. this kind of looks and feels more like traditional Western cartooning. Uh, mm-hmm. A lot of the characters are drawn more in caricature style, but the line work is very precise and clean. Um, Mizuki puts himself into the book. The sort of framing device is him going to the town of Tona, where all of these stories take place, and visiting places where the stories happened, you know. So it gives you a little commentary on each story. Uh, it's mm-hmm. a it's a cute, fun book. The the backgrounds of the illustrations, whereas the the characters look cartoony in a in a in a good way, the backgrounds are so lushly and beautifully illustrated. And I know that there's a thing where manga, like sometimes they have ghost artists doing that background stuff, but still, yeah. it, it's a beautiful looking book in that regard. Um, and it was really nice to see a book that approaches this in a in an accessible way. The translator Zach Davison has a nice introduction. And then throughout the book, there's short little essays explaining certain aspects of folklore. So the stories themselves, there's not much to them. They're very simplistic. But approaching it from an educational standpoint, if you want to know more about Japanese folklore and yokai and uh, Japanese fairy tales, it's a really good introduction. I'm actually pretty excited to go read more of Mizuki's work. I know he did a very big, important book that was The History of Japan. So yeah. I'm probably going to find that at the library and read that next. So there you go. I'm I'm not fully uh, converted, but I am dabbling in manga now. So oh man, you know we we did it, everybody. Uh, 300 episodes. It finally happened. <laughs> finally happened. Um, no, I, you know that Shawa book. Um, yeah, I've I've seen that at many a bookstore, and I've I've paged through it. A friend of mine picked up the first, I think, two volumes of that, and he said it's dense, but it is it's fascinating. Yeah. from start to finish, just to see an illustrated history done from a an intentionally like super serious, like trying to be objective um, standpoint. I've heard that that series is fantastic, so I I wish you the best of luck because it's <laughs> supposed to be big and dense, but um, also enlightening. So good luck. Yeah. Well, thank you. Yeah. I, luckily, I did like Mizuki's artwork. This the, his style is really more mm-hmm. my speed than some of the other manga stuff I've read, which again is my exposure is very limited. So sure. Um, I also made time to read uh, immortal Hulk number 50. A good thing I made some time because this is literally a -hmm. very big conclusion to uh, Al Ewing and Joe Bennett's uh, immortal Hulk book. I think this clocks in about 80 pages. Um, Yeah. It was almost a hundred pages. Yeah. It was like 89 maybe. (laughs) It says right here on the spine of the comic, 80 page final issue. So there you go. Well, damn it. (laughs) (laughs) Again, this series, I've talked about it at length on the show. This is written by Al Ewing, art by Joe Bennett, uh, inks by Roy Jose and Bellardino Babro, colors by Paul Mounts, and letters by Corey Pettit. Um, I should just address the elephant in the room. Uh, For those of you that maybe aren't uh, following on Twitter or didn't hear about it, there was some controversy about Joe Bennett, the artist, Uh, some illustrations he had done years ago that were racially or politically questionable. Mm-hmm. Uh, emerge, which kind of tampered my enthusiasm for this series, you know. Um, but I was invested enough to see it to the end. I think Al Ewing is crafting a, crafted a very beautiful story that's incredibly emotional. It really smashes the heartstrings, as opposed to you know the normal type of smashing Hulk does. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, um, I, I I thought this was a very very well done final issue. It really sticks the landing. You know, you get a nice conclusion, which you don't always get in a lot of comic books, especially mainstream superhero comics. Um, it's it's a big emotional story. It makes you really think about the Hulk in a different way, and I think that was the whole point of the series. Uh, it really does recontextualize Bruce Banner and the Hulk in a way that I don't know how you're ever going to follow up. So I think uh, good luck <laughs> yeah. to good luck to Donny Cates who's taking over the Hulk after this. I think the best course of action is just maybe like, ignore this story or treat it as a standalone story, not try to follow up on it. But um, yeah, I know a lot of people are reading this book in trade, so I won't get too into details. But I found myself very very moved by this uh, final issue, and I'm excited to uh, actually go back and reread this whole series. I think it's one of these legendary superhero runs kind of like Hawkeye we were just talking about where people are going to be going back for years and picking mm-hmm. this book apart and really sort of enjoying it as a standalone story. I mean, those those first two arcs in this book are probably some of the most brilliant comics I've read in a long time from Marvel and yeah. like in DC, like just just the way that Ewing framed the entire book as a horror story to start, like, yeah, totally changed my perspective on what was possible with something like a Hulk book. And I know like the, the history of the Hulk has always had like its its ties into into horror and stuff, but I just had never re- read that. Like I had read, you know, Greg Pox, Planet Hulk or, yeah. or yeah. you know, King or whatever the hell, King Hulk, whatever the fuck they're called. I can't never <laughs> keep these things straight. Uh, but you know what I mean? Like those those big things like where Hulk is this thing and you take him more seriously and he's got more power in his mind than you think. Mm-hmm. And I think Ewing took all of that, everything that there was. And he, like you said, recontextualized it in such a brilliant way. But starting it with like there's more to this thing, but it's a mystery. And he slowly, slowly peeled back the layers yeah. to try to show it to you. I, I really, really like that. Yeah. And I will say that the ending, I mean, I'll have to go back and again reread the series, maybe pick it apart, see how Ewing sort of lays all the seeds. But it's a conclusive ending, but also the big mystery that you know he starts with is still sort of there. It's not completely solved, so you can always go back yeah. to this at some point. So he didn't yeah. quote unquote close that door. Exactly. If you know what I mean? Wink, wink, wink. <laughs> Get off the stage. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, but I agree with you, Paul. I do not envy Donny Cates and co for what they have to follow up with next. And I'm sure it's going to go in a totally different direction. Oh, to, I hear yeah. King and Green is going to be the first thing. <laughs> I don't know. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, but Ryan Otley on art is very exciting. I think all of us have at least read a little bit of Invincible to say Ryan yeah. Otley knows how to draw mm-hmm. big, gory fight scenes. And you yep. know what? Sometimes that's the Hulk and that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> sometimes you just want to see Hulk smash and boy, that's that's enough for me sometimes. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah <laughs> I, I feel like this this has been like a, ni- a nice break and i'm ready for a more conventional hulk story now <laughs> yeah for sure for sure what about you mike for me well this week has been crazy i took the whole week off for my birthday i decided if i'm gonna turn 33 i might as well relax <laughs> or something <laughs> sure so i had my birthday this past week where i pickled a bunch of vegetables because that's what you do now that i'm old um and everyone and, and their brother wanted to remind me well that's a thing that everyone does in the midwest and i was like well i fucking never did it so <laughs> get off my ass i live in jersey now otherwise i did read a lot of comic books like i read a lot of comic nice. books and i played a lot of video games and i mostly just relaxed which was nice despite you know the hellscape of of the outside the world that is still there and ever present but yeah i did i did read some stuff I, I cannot express enough how awesome the series vinland saga is if you haven't read vinland saga highly recommend it it's very i i want to say mature it deals a lot of mature subjects in terms of just like viking brutality and like the horrors of war and things like that um it's a very well done series that doesn't try to 
gratify any of the pillaging and all the other stuff that the Vikings did. It very much approaches the idea of like, if violence is the core of an entire culture, how do we tell a story that isn't like taking all of that and like making it look cool? You know, mm-hmm. it's it's a really interesting series. Probably one of the most beautiful manga I've ever read. The the level of detail in this series is unparalleled as far as I'm concerned. I don't know of another comic that is this detailed and just well drawn for like a monthly series. So highly recommend that if you're looking for something that's not your typical like shonen, like I'm going to be the strongest there ever is type of manga. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very, very good. But I did read some other stuff. Um, I read Newburn number one and two. This is by Chip Zdarsky and Jacob Phillips. Uh, this book isn't out yet. I think the first issue actually comes out on November 3rd. We got some advanced copies because um, Image likes us now. We finally got on Image's good side. And uh, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Their PR person reached out to me and I was like, yeah, let's read this. Um, but the story is uh, a former cop turned mob hired investigator solves the crimes and mysteries for various mafiosos of New York City. Um, at least I think it's New York City. Uh, and he's looking for a number two. He's looking for someone to to be his partner in this. Mm-hmm. Uh, the hook for this story is solid enough. And I think like the character uh, of Newburn himself is interesting. But like there's a moment where Newburn finds his second in command and uh, this 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 person in the story. And it just really felt really forced. So like while the story hook itself is interesting and all the, the mysteries of this series are really interesting. Um, at least in the first two issues, like the the get together moment of those two characters was so like off putting it like really mm. took me out of the comic. Hmm. But the stumbling blocks aside, this book is really cool. Like I said, like all of the things that make up this book for its fundamentals and what kind of story it's going to be is really cool. It feels like a prime time police procedural where the antihero is actually the hero and. I don't know why that's interesting in comics, but not on television, probably because it doesn't take me 45 minutes to get through 10 minutes of plot. Yeah. But um, yeah, these, these first two issues do read really well like that. The stumbling blocks that I set aside, um, they read really well. And Phillips's art is utterly just perfect for this. I mean, at this point, anything that's Mark Jacob or Sean Phillips, I'm just going to pick up blindly. I don't even care what the story subject is because... <laughs> they are both incredible, like in their own rights. Like you can see um, Jacob's influence from his dad, but at the same time, he owns so much more different stylistic choices um, than what you would see from Sean Phillips. And I love that. Like, I don't know. I didn't really read. I haven't read enough John Romita and John Romita Jr. to say, like, if I know the difference between those two, because in my mind, I conflate them as the same thing. But um, I feel like (laughs) the difference between Sean and Jacob Phillips is a lot wider. Sure. But in a way that you can still see a similar origin point, And I, I think it's fantastic. Yeah. But yeah, so I, the one other thing I will say is this is like a super, super solid crimey book, if that's what you want. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know if I would have read number two, if I didn't already have it, I probably would have trade weighted this book had I not already had the second issue. So um, reader beware, I guess if you pick up number one, Number two is where the book actually starts, which kind of stinks. And I feel like I'm asking for like an oversized number one when I usually complain about those. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that this book might have actually benefited from having a double sized first issue to kind of like flesh out the things that really makes this book like blossom, which happens in the second issue. So, um, yeah, either way, I would recommend this. If you're if you're looking for something November 3rd, put this on your pull list. This book is going to be super solid. I think it's going to be that first arc is going to floor us and the first two issues are spectacular. Awesome. Yeah, like I'm, as a pair. Yeah, I I'm waiting to read this. I'm definitely very curious. I mean, crime books are very much my my uh cup of tea and then after reading his Daredevil stuff, I think Zdarsky doing a sort of police procedural crime story is is definitely something I want to read. So, mm-hmm. yeah, cool. 
Yeah, uh, the one other book I want to talk about really quick is No One Left to Fight Number Two, or excuse me, No One Left to Fight Two Number One. Love a sequel. Um, <laughs> I had the same problem just reading that in your notes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, this is Aubrey Sitterson uh, with art by Fico Asio, colors by Fico Asio and Rachel, Rachel Avila, uh, letters by Taylor Esposito. Um, honestly, this should have just been called No One Left to Fight Number Six, but whatever. Uh, this over the top anime, dumb, amazing comic is back and even more wild stuff. Uh, finally managed to ask the question or, you know, hey, so maybe the women in this story should actually get something to say about who she loves and why she loves them and so on and so forth, which was a problem I had in the first arc. Um, so if you don't know what No One Left to Fight is, uh, essentially like this super powered Goku style character comes back to meet his old arch nemesis slash best friend Vegeta that's not Vegeta and his wife who's Bulma but not Bulma and their kids who definitely aren't trunks like I don't I keep comparing it to Dragon Ball because like it's really easy to do that but this these two guys they used to be like the most powerful people in the world they defeated this super bad guy um and then they went their separate ways uh and he comes back to visit his buddy and they have to go on one last trek to try to solve this problem and it turns out that oh spoilers uh our main character is sick and he just wanted one last fight um and the series ends on like a nice conclusion but it clearly could have kept going and so i was kind of surprised that they're like we'll see if this comes back uh, I thought it got canceled or it just was a natural ending. And instead, like no one left to fight two number one, just literally picks up where number five left off on the previous series. So I don't know. I like this series. I think it's really fun. Like it's really dumb and fun. And you can see where a citizen is pulling from a lot of different manga and just action story tropes um, to try to tell this really kind of just wonky series and the reason why this whole book works is because of fico osio's art i think with any other artist i probably wouldn't have continued reading this but osio manages to pack so much punch into every single page not just combat like just all the details of this book are impressive and the color work is incredible it looks like you're looking at one of those like neon posters you would buy at like a spencer's gift that's clearly supposed to be under like a uv light yeah, I, I don't know. This book is, is beautiful and, and really, really fun altogether. So, like, I would say don't pick this up if you haven't read the previous series, but do go pick it up if you have read the previous series or you're going to read it. Because, I don't know, I think this book is a lot of fun. I, I think Citizen's going to take us on a pretty fun ride. He's introduced a lot of wacky elements, and he manages to mix kind of, like, goofy tropes with, like semi-serious dialogue and character development and i think just this first issue alone proves that he intentionally wrote the first arc to be kind of 2d so that he could flesh things out in the next arc i don't know this book is fun but it might be worth the trade weight if you're if you're just waiting to if you want just a bunch of story all at once i don't know how else to sell that it's really <laughs> okay. bad but still citizen's a pretty solid writer but yeah, let's let's talk about comic books that are uh, coming out soon, or basically whatever we've got next on the top of our pile. So let's uh, for for those of you that are looking for books that are coming out this week, they're dropping the day of this episode, October twentieth, two thousand twenty one. But if not, that's totally fine because we're changing things up. I read comic books is changing, <laughs> and you have to deal with it. So Brian, what are you excited for that's coming out soon, or what's on the top of your pile? So this is something that I actually didn't remember was coming out, uh, but I subscribed on Comixology forever ago mm -hmm. and got the notification that it was available, I think, last Tuesday, Tuesday or Wednesday. Nice. Uh, it's How Do We Relationship Volume 4. It's a manga uh, written and illustrated by a mangaka by the name of Tammy Full. And it, it's it's a really enjoyable slice of life manga. Hmm. I don't want to say it reminds me of Giant Days because they're they're very different stories, 
but I think that it, it fills the same niche that Giant Days did in my life of just a, a story of, of young people going to college and figuring out who they are. But this is a, a really good exploration of two young women who are in their, their first like adult relationship together mm-hmm. and trying to figure out like, how do we relationship? Like, what does it mean to be, you know, two lesbians in love in Japan? Mm. And it's, it's, it's one of those things where they, they explore it a lot because my understanding is that uh, Japan has a more deep seated homophobia than even America. Mm-hmm. And so even though it is set in modern day at a time when I, as an American, um, I don't bat an eye at same-sex couples anymore. Apparently, it is it is still more taboo in in Japan. Mm-hmm. So. It's interesting that there that comics like this are being published. You know what I mean? <laughs> in, in a in a society where it feels like that like type of relationship is suppressed, like or is looked down upon. Like the, 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 where the conservatism lies is kind of like, it's not a blanket, I guess is what Mm -hmm. I'm getting at. You know, like it doesn't feel like everyone is thinking that way. It's that for, there is like a, a cultural, like maybe I guess like disapproving feeling, but obviously somebody's publishing these types of stories. And this isn't the first time I've seen this kind of stuff, you know, like the whole BL genre is out there and is very popular, but yeah. Yeah. And I, I I think that basically what we're seeing is like a, a turning point in those attitudes because i think that Mm -hmm. a lot of members of like our generation and younger are looking at their their more conservative parents going wait a minute none of this makes any sense right right well this sounds like a a nice little little series i mean the art looks very nice from what i looked up just now so yeah it's i mean it's, it's just it's fun it's it's it has it's like heavy serious moments where we talk about are we dating because we actually like each other or are you just the only other out lesbian i know oh Which boy is a, a thing that from the the people i've spoken to in those kinds of relationships is a very real fear right right so uh, i find it very authentic and very charming very cool paul what about you what's uh what's on the top of your pile you know, uh, as much as I t- admitted to changing my tastes or expanding my horizons after episode 300, I'm going mm-hmm. to play back to type. Uh, I am excited for <laughs> <laughs> Destroy All Monsters. This is the new Reckless book uh, by yeah. Edward Baker and Sean Phillips. I don't know what else Hell to say yeah. at this point. I mean, <laughs> these books are very much my cup of tea. I already like Brubaker and Phillips, but I think lately they've been firing on all cylinders. I like their new approach to instead of doing just a regular serialized monthly comic releasing you know every few months a nice 100 page standalone hardcover ogn you know what i mean Mm -hmm. but what's nice is that these books they're a series in that they're it's the same character uh ethan reckless in each one but you can read them as standalone books you can sort of enjoy them on their own but if you follow the character you can see the growth and change over time which is something that they did with criminal early on but i think they've Mm -hmm. really honed that with this book and what's great is that Brubaker is really able to draw from the type of cheap, I, I use not cheap in a derogatory term, term, but you know, like the sort of pulpy crime and detective novels like Parker or that's the only one I can think of off the top of my head, but books by, by like Jim Thompson, <laughs> you know, Jim Thompson's books or uh, Richard sure. Sark who wrote Parker, those types mm-hmm. of books. And I've read enough of those books to know that's what he's mimicking, but he's setting it in the late seventies, early eighties, a different time period, giving the character a different sort of approach in personality than those types of books usually had their protagonists have. 
So it's like he's internalized all of the stuff he's always been influenced by, but finally able to make it feel unique and feel Brewbreaker rather than him playing up a type of, you know, uh, a stereotypical type of story. You know what I mean? So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think these are some of his their best work. If you already like Brubrick and Phillips, you're going to like this stuff. If you've never really dabbled in that stuff, this might be the place to start. I think these Reckless books are them at their absolute best. You, again, you do have Jacob Phillips doing color on the, all these books, mm-hmm. and his color work is just beautiful. It, these books look amazing. I like getting the big hardcovers to sit on my shelf. So uh, yeah. Obviously, you can tell I'm very excited for this new one. I mean, this this was going to be my pick until I saw that you had put it in here. So um, I'm right there with you. Perfect. I mean, so my top top of my pile for this week, honestly, it should be Wasted Space because I have been rereading Wasted <laughs> Space. But boy, oh boy, is that book wordy as hell. And quite honestly, I'm not looking forward to it as much as Do- The Death of Doctor Strange number two. This is by <laughs> Jed McKay, art by Lee Garbnet, or Garbett, uh, colors by Antonio Fabella. And I mean, the first issue, of this was pretty, pretty wild. I have no idea what's going on in the Doctor Strange universe. So like, I'm just kind of, I kind of went into this blind. And the only reason I really wanted to read this is because I'm reading Strange Academy. Mm-hmm. Um, that's like the only real tie into that, the mystical Marvel universe that I have. And so, you know, the twist at the end of the first issue was enough for me to go, okay, fuck it. Like, take me away, Jed McCade. Show me this magical, insane fucking world that you want to do where you're pulling in every single magic user across mm-hmm. all of Marvel to tell this crazy story. Honestly, the twist in number one, I saw a little coming a little bit. I think like anybody who read the, that issue maybe did. But nonetheless, I was I was very happy with what happened. And so I'm very excited to see what happens next. And I don't know. I'm not really like a big Doctor Strange reader. Like the, I've never I've always tried. I've tried a handful of his books mm-hmm. um, and I've never been hooked. And I've never read one that I was like, yeah, fuck yeah, Doctor Strange. But here here I'm sitting here like you killed him. Okay, let's see what this is all about. <laughs> so, um, yeah, this this first, the first issue was solid, and uh, I'm really excited to see where the rest goes. Yeah, I, I might have to check this out again. Doctor Strange, one of those characters that I kind of like in theory, but very rarely Same. find myself reading. You know what I mean? Yeah. Now I've read yeah. the I've read the Ditko stuff and a few things here or there, and I'm really enjoying the new Defender series. And he's the main character in that one. But yeah, I think finding a, a contemporary Doctor Strange book to dig into might be might be worthwhile. Yeah. And you know, uh, I completely missed our Discord picks. They're right in front of me in my notes, and I completely missed them. Uh, <laughs> we do have a couple people hanging out with us in the Discord. They're wonderful, fantastic human beings, and uh, their picks for this week. Danny is picking Nubia in the Amazons, number one. Stephanie is reading Monsters, volume one. I'm guessing for the book club that we have coming up on Saturday. I didn't announce that at the top of the show because I think I talked about it last week, but we do have a book club. We're reading Monstrous. It's going to be awesome. But yeah, shout out to the Discord folks, as, as always, for hanging out with us live. But yeah, Doctor Strange. Strange stuff, I guess. <laughs> I mean, I'm excited for the new movie that's coming out, but maybe we'll take a quick break. When we come back, we'll talk a little bit more about movies in general, because we're talking mm. Spider-Man 2 today, baby. Yes. And uh, I'm very excited about that. So we will be right back. This week on I Read Comic Books, we are talking about Spider-Man 2. We're talking about Sam Raimi's Spider-Man 2 from 2004. Um, if you listen to the IRCB Movie Club that we have on Patreon, which we all recommend you go for five bucks a month, you can get access to that. Everything else that we do over there, which is a lot. 
kind of slowed it down for the last like quarter of the year as we're going to kick things back up into high gear with Saga coming back and all sorts of other things more to come in the near future on that but nonetheless IRCB Movie Club a couple months ago we talked about Spider-Man the original by Sam Raimi starring Tobey Maguire Kirsten Dunst James Franco and uh what's the who was who played the villain Willem I can't Defoe. remember his name Willem Dafoe, how could I forget? <laughs> and plenty of other people. Uh, and so today, I, I, I've i been sitting on this for a while, like since we did that episode. I wanted to do a follow-up. I wanted to talk about Spider-Man 2 because in my mind, I was like, that's the iconic film. That's the one that I love the most. The answer is, it turns out that that's not the case. I love this movie, but all the iconic stuff that I could remember was in Spider-Man 1. So that being said, I still want to talk to Brian and Paul who do IRCB Movie Club along with me. I guess Paul runs the whole thing. It's not really my spiel, but uh, I want to talk about Spider-Man 2. So guys... What did you think of Spider-Man 2? Paul, this is not how we normally do the movie club. I'm sorry. <laughs> I know. I know. So, yeah. So, listeners, we kind of uh, want to do a sort of mini version of the the movie club episode for this discussion. Again, if you haven't listened to that, we highly recommend checking it out. It's a really fun show that we do over there. Um, and we did talk about Spider-Man quite a bit. And I think the main topic that we came to and sort of agreed to or agreed about with in regards to the 2002 Spider-Man film was that the film works best as a Sam Raimi film that has Spider-Man in it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. If, if Going back to revisit that was very interesting, 20 years later almost, to see how different contemporary comic book films, particularly the superhero uh, MCU, Marvel Cinematic Universe movies, feel from that movie. It was a nice thing to go back. And again, same thing, Mike. I In my brain, it's like, yeah, well, Spider-Man 2 is clearly the best one. And I don't think I'd actually watched the entire movie since it came out. So actually sitting down and rewatching <laughs> it. But the thing is, the the iconic scenes you remember, those are amazing. There are certain scenes in this movie that are just seared into my brain because they're so well done. And to kind of uh, draw my the rambling point here to a conclusion, they work, again, because it's more of what worked in the first one, and that's letting Sam Raimi make a Sam Raimi movie for the most part. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, mm-hmm. I'll cut right to the chase. Chase. The scene in the operating room where Dr. Octopus's arms come to life and he becomes Doc Ock. Oh, Oc, my God. That is the most Sam Raimi shit. That is Evil Dead 2 level <laughs> shit. And it's so yeah, fucking yeah. good. I remember sitting in the theater grinning ear to ear when I saw that. And I did the same thing last night when I watched it again. <laughs> yeah, I guess we should say, you know, spoilers for a 20 year old movie. But sure. uh, if you haven't seen Spider-Man 2, go watch it. But Brian, what was your thought, I guess, as you went back and revisited this film? I really loved the way they, they did Doc Ock's character in this movie. Yeah. The way that like because. From I went back and found uh, I can't remember what it's called. It's like a Marvel's The Essential Steve Ditko or something like that. It's a it's a collection of Ditko's work. Mm-hmm. But one of the stories in it is the introduction of Doctor Octopus from the comics. Also, the comic with the uh, the iconic Spider Man under the rubble mm-hmm. scene. Yes, mm. yes. But he's he's much more of just like a a clear villain in the comic, whereas. Sure. In the in the movie, they present him in such a an empathetic way, and they they kind of make it clear that you know it's not so much that he goes bad as it is the AI in the arms sort mm-hmm. of like gets into his head, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and that's sort of the reason why he's going off the deep end. <laughs> and I think well, and they I'm sorry, I, I, just really quick on that, I, I think what what really struck me about Otto's. Perform or the way that he's pre portrayed in the movie is he basically is what Peter wants to be, mm-hmm. right? He is this this perfect. I'm a scientist. I married someone who's not a scientist who's in a completely different field of living, and yet we came together and found love, right? 
it's basically like what Peter wants out of his life. Um, he wants to be this successful thing, the scientist, but he also, of course, has the Spider-Man problem. But, you know, he he's looking for love. He, his, you know, struggle from the end of the first movie where he tells uh, uh, Mary Jane that he can't be with her and she cries and mm-hmm. <laughs> so over the top. Um it's 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 wonderful to see that like this this character Otto Octavius is saying look you can have it all if you just have to put your mind to it you know Peter's whole thing that he's been struggling with especially in the first third of that of the second movie is that he can't he can't get his priorities in line he can't make everything fit which is the classic spider-man dilemma Mm -hmm. um i I just love the way that they showed otto having everything that peter wanted without it being like an envious thing like it's an aspiration that peter can have i I thought that was perfect yeah and uh, and brian i'm glad you brought up the the ditko comics because again i think we talked about this when we talked about the first spider-man but obviously raimi is so deeply influenced by that that he he avoids trying to make it the movie visually mimic that stuff, but I think he captures the tone of those comics really, really well and updates them in, a, in an important way. So I don't feel too corny. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm, but he does yeah. capture like that, the sense of that. And you definitely get that here again. I think the movie works best because it lets Raimi be Raimi. It's just more of everything that worked in the first movie. And what I really appreciated was again, the, the Alfred Molina's performance as Doc Ock and the way you do get a character that is restrained and calculating in a very different way than uh, Willem Dafoe was manic as Green Goblin. Like those two <laughs> villains could not be more different. And I like, I feel like every superhero movie you have to choose, like, is a villain going to be doing the Frank Gorshin Riddler slash Willem Dafoe Green Goblin, or is going to be the cold calculated Alfred Molina <laughs> Doc Ock slash Thanos? And it's like, mm-hmm, we have mm-hmm. those iconic, like, that's the only two options you can do. You can't, there's no middle ground, right? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. We don't know what this new Batman trailer <laughs> has yeah, yeah, in yeah, store yeah. for us for the Riddler. I'm um, sorry, sorry. Go ahead. Brian. So there is always the uh, the Eric Kelmonger. I'm too cool for this. Yeah, right. Okay. That's uh, true. School That's of true. thought That's as well. True. That is true. <laughs> so it, only three types of villains in these superhero movies. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> but I think you're right. I think the the key of one of the key things in the movie that everyone remembers is <laughs> Doctor Octopus, and it's Alfred Molina's performance is so. So oh, great because it, it's understated, yet he is chewing scenery. It's you know, it's it's balanced and nuanced in a way that Willem Dafoe's character was not. You know what I mean? I love yeah. both yeah. of them for different reasons, and I think that's what's great about these Spider-Man movies is the way that they let those villains just like really take almost take center stage. It almost becomes a movie about Doctor Octopus and his redemption at the end, as opposed to Spider-Man. Yeah. I feel like Molina somehow managed to portray a comic book villain who acts like a comic book villain without it being comic booky, if that makes any sense. Like, sure. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I mean, I was watching as I was watching through this whole movie, all I, you know, I'm sitting there with Kelly and I'm, I'm having my Lord of the Rings on the internet moment, right. Where like every scene I'm calling out, Oh, but you know why they did this is because, and she's like, can you just let me watch the movie? Um, <laughs> but I, the thing that I, I, I love, there's a moment where uh, Spider-Man and Doc Ock are fighting, you know, this is the Aunt May scene coming out of the bank, which like, what are the chances that Doc Ock ran into the same bank? I mean, and robbed, stole all those arcade coins. I mean, New York's a pretty small town. I mean, there's not many banks <laughs> yeah. in Manhattan. So, but like, as, as we're watching this thing we're like halfway through the movie and all i can think of is like when i think of spider-man i always think oh his arch nemesis is green goblin and it's like what the fuck is wrong with my brain (laughs) the perfect villain for for spider-man is doc ock right not just because of the the extra arms and whatever it's like it's this this fractured genius who has to you know do the opposite of what peter parker is doing and i'm sure that you know folks out there have read way more 
Spider-Man than I have will say like, yeah, Mike, you need to go back and read that time that Doc Ock was Spider-Man for a while. I know, I know. <laughs> but um, I, I really just admired the way that we got this like perfect nemesis moment in this in the movie. I mean, I think by the end of the movie, it kind of falls off the deep end. But I, I thought it was really, really well portrayed, like the the actual I don't know, counterbalance to each other that that Spider-Man was to Doc Ock and vice versa. Yeah. It, again, this the film is able to, because they've already done the Spider-Man origin story, they can kind of just let the side characters kind of pop up. And you get the almost mm-hmm. a parallel story, like I, you said, between Doc Ock and Peter Parker. Uh, you know, Peter Parker sees Dr. Octopus or Dr. Octavius as an aspirational figure. You know what I mean? And you get the sort of parallel story there, you know, and they both mm-hmm. have redemptive moments at the end when, you know, because there's also the other subplot of the movie, which is where Peter Parker loses his Spider-Man powers and gives up being Spider-Man. You know what I, mean? I, I put that completely out of my mind in this movie. <laughs> yeah, I too. did not remember that at all. <laughs> and, you know, again, I feel like, I mean, Raimi wants to do so much. He wants to reference all these classic Spider-Man moments, uh-huh. you know, uh-huh. and so you get the, the costume in the trash can, like the cover of Spider-Man No More, you know, and you get the story of him losing <laughs> yeah. his powers, which has happened several times, you know, and you're getting all this stuff. And at the same time, it might feel overstuffed, but what I liked was the way the movie was felt self-contained in a way where there could put Easter eggs in without needing to set up another movie, which is, I think, the main problem I have with a lot of the contemporary MCU movies. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, oh, they keep having I, Kurt Connors show up, and you know he's going to be the yeah. lizard, you know what I mean? But he I doesn't need not, to be the lizard. I did not even catch that. I've seen this movie <laughs> probably a dozen times, and it wasn't until Kelly went, does that guy only have one arm? I went, oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. All right. It's perfect. Yeah. So I I think that the nice thing about the the Spider-Man films going to make a revisit them is like, oh, a superhero movie that isn't setting up a well, setting up a franchise, but it's not setting up a whole, you know, quote unquote phase of films where they all need to tie right. together. Right. It's, it's, it's leaving seeds. Yeah, exactly. It's it's not here to to launch seven other films. <laughs> right. I mean, even the 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 throwaway line of Jameson Doc, or Jan- Jonah Jameson saying, "Like, could we call him Doctor Strange?" and he's like, "No, that one's already taken." I want to pull on that thread, but Raimi said, "You know what? If you guys want to, it's there, but I'm not going to touch this any further." Like that was, I love well, that. I absolutely love that. <laughs> he's coming back. He's doing Doctor Strange again. So, uh, well, yeah. oh sure, and uh, God help us if we don't get a J. Jonah Jameson flashback moment, right? Like, <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> I do think again. Oh, we obviously talked about a lot in the previous episode where we talked about Mm spider-man but again jk simmons as j joma jameson is the perfect Mm -hmm. casting that is you know you could not make that character better i laughed out loud so hard at the scene where peter parker asked to get paid in advance right (laughs) right and j joma jameson (laughs) thought he was joking it's so so well done and like what what brings me to a point i do want to make with this movie in particular i feel like they let Raimi be more of what he's comfortable with, which is we always think about the horror aspect of Raimi, but he's incredibly funny. And so much of this movie is funny without being self-consciously funny. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like it's not mm-hmm. seriously saying like, isn't this wacky? It's all about comedic timing. And there's so many moments in this movie that are hilarious because it's like, it's like Bugs Bunny cartoon type comedic timing, which right. is sort of timeless and you don't always expect it, but it works really well in this movie. Like I think, you know, when Peter Parker's trying to sneak into his apartment and then his landlord is like screaming at him, like that's hilarious. All of those mm-hmm. scenes are great. The scene at ed- him running out of the bathroom yes. as Peter's trying to leave, yelling, Red! Right, exactly. <laughs> and then the the scene at the wedding where you see like, 
you know, everyone's waiting for Mary Jane to walk down the aisle and then you see J. Joma Jameson's head like pop out, pop into frame, uh-huh. like what's going on? Uh-huh. And then the punchline, like tell the caterer not to open the caviar. Like it's all so funny. And I, there's yeah. very few comic book movies or superhero movies that I think work as comedies. And this one definitely does for me, at least for me, my taste. Yeah. Say, but you didn't like Thor Ragnarok. So I think no. that you and I have very different <laughs> feelings on comedy. In yeah, general. I mean, exactly. There's it, like, yeah. like, but like you said, Paul, it's like a cartoonish over the top kind of like not trying to be funny in like a in like a classical comedy way like it's really it's really old school i guess like in yeah. in terms of yeah. I, I misspoke the way that i said that it's like i think thor was trying to be funny and like be like a comedy movie whereas spider-man is trying to be a superhero movie with injected comedy mm-hmm. wherever they could because otherwise it's way too serious of a film i don't know it's it feels like i i totally get what you're saying with that paul though but yeah. it's it's very funny but like it's so corny and the problem that i had with this movie is but it is that the internet has like memed the hell out of this every (laughs) little bit like the pizza time thing the j jonah jameson laughing the spider-man on the subway with his face all like flubbed up you know i feel like i've seen those image those images and those bits and pieces like a million times like peter parker just saying pizza time a hundred times in a row in a video and then me going huh this is peak comedy like (laughs) it's it's so stupid so you know watching this again i was like wow i guess like this movie never disappeared from my mind i just it just it reappeared in, in a way that I didn't get it. So like coming back to actually watch the source was really a bizarre experience for me after not seeing it in so long. Oh, I, I completely agree. And I, again, there are certain moments or images in this movie that are like seared into my brain. And like, I think that might speak to the quality of the movie that people are still talking about it. No one's talking about the, the, uh, whatever his name, the Andrew Garfield Spider-Man movies. You know what I mean? Like right. no one mentions those, but everyone talks about for better, for worse, this one in Spider-Man 3, you know what I mean? For different reasons, maybe, but right. everyone remembers I mean, these movies, so. But that's like comparing, like, white bread <laughs> to, you know, like, a wheat bread that's not necessarily great, but has a lot of character, you know? Sure. Um, yeah. <laughs> okay, yeah. <laughs> That's one way to put it. I mean, I don't know. I, I will say, like, I, I wrote my letterbox review for this when I was th- after I watched the movie because I'm one of those people now that just all I want to do is file things in letterbox. You know, I, I watched this and I was like, what a great bad movie. Like, what a stinker that totally rules because this mm. movie is mm-hmm. is super corny. It's way over the top. But again, it's like the foundation of a lot of superhero films. And this is something that I was getting at when we watched the first Spider-Man movies like while there were other superhero movies at the time, I feel like this, these Spider-Man films, especially these first two really were like the launching pad for like, we could do a fuckload of these movies guys. And like everybody got on board. And if you look at the trajectory, like, I mean, I know it starts with blade or something like that. I'm sure that someone has a better timeline, but I feel like once Spider-Man and X-Men started to do well, it was like, holy shit, guys, we've got a gold mine here. Um, And here we are 20 years later with 20 fucking superhero movies coming out every other year. So, Mm Yeah, I, I really don't think a movie it's funny because I don't think a movie like Spider-Man 2 could come out now because we everybody expects like big tie-ins and all this other sh- stuff and like leaving little seeds like a Doctor Strange throwback or like a lizard character yeah. that just d- goes unmentioned um, would have people tearing the movies to shreds to try to figure out how things are going to develop. But I mean, this these movies work really well for their time, but it's it's just unfortunate that you couldn't do them, I guess, in the future or nowadays. Yeah. Yeah. And I wonder that like if. This movie, if the internet had been as big now as it was when this movie came out, like if they had yeah. had TikTok in 2004, <laughs> I guarantee you this movie would have been analyzed to death just like every other movie is now. Right. Sure, sure. Yeah. 
But I mean, again, it, I think it harkens back to a time, and I'm glad you mentioned Blade, because I did recently rewatch the first Blade and had a blast watching that one. Because they, this movie and those Blade movies, they're a callback to a time when superhero movies could be weird and unique. And I feel like it's now we're, and that's not true for all superhero movies, but the majority of them do have to do a lot of heavy lifting, setting up a franchise. They have a particular style. I mean, all those MCU movies look exactly the same. And it's like, no matter what director you get, I mean, outside of maybe uh, Ryan Coogler doing Black Panther mm-hmm. and Taika Waititi doing, you know, the Thor stuff, most of those movies look exactly the same. And you can swap them. They're all kind of interchangeable. And again, I like them all. I enjoy watching them, but they're not going to be remembered, I think, or celebrated the way that maybe these movies are for better or for worse. You know what I mean? So sure. Spider-Man 2 is a weird movie when you actually sit back and think about a lot of these scenes. Like, yeah, this is a fucking weird superhero movie, and it's better because of that, I think. Yeah. I well <laughs> I mean the the thing that I noticed upon rewatching this, and I think that I watched the extended edition. I yeah. don't know if you guys yeah, watched same. the regular edition, the extended edition. The extended edition made this movie feel so fucking disjointed. Like yeah scenes are way too long or like there's just like extra little paddings to things that didn't need to be there Mm -hmm. (laughs) i felt like there was a moment where i was laughing my ass off where peter he gets in a fight with aunt may tell her doesn't get in a fight he's like hey so i watched uncle ben die and she's like oh and then she leaves (laughs) and then he comes back to her house later and uh she gives this monologue but the the it's like a two and a half minute long scene that's just slowly zooming in on peter's face and does not cut back to the actress (laughs) at all and i was like what the fuck is like, is this a fever dream? Like this could have been a a monologue that she had as Peter was doing anything else instead of just standing there at her house. And I know that they needed to be there, which I, because of reasons in the story, but like, God damn, it was so awkward watching it. And I was like, in a no- I feel like in a modern movie, you'd never get that. Like there would be another action sequence or another sequence going on while this monologue was given the same way that we get that in comics where a caption carries over to the next page or something, you know, it just felt it felt really awkward. And I, I yeah. noticed that in a lot of scenes, there was a lot of just disjointedness in some of the things. And I, I don't know if it's the extended edition or just the way the editing was done for the movie, um, but it didn't feel as well done, well edited as the first movie. And it kind of threw me. Yeah, I feel like talking heads are never a good thing in a in a film. We don't have to have sure. like action sequences breaking this up. But even if right. we just had like, you know, Aunt May's in the kitchen whipping up a batch of her famous wheat cakes or something, <laughs> right. Right. and we we have Peter like have her stop in the middle and say, "Pass me that flour or something." Mm-hmm. Like, I, I mean, know, it's... I just watched my dinner with Andre, and I beg to differ, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> don't watch that movie; yeah. it's way too long. Uh, but go ahead, Paul. If you love, yeah, if you love watch, watching people talk, you're going to love my dinner with Andre. Um, yeah, yeah. No, I, I think I do think I, I don't know how I ended up watching the extended uh, version of it, but in my mind, it 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 was not the same film because it's just like, yeah. for the most part. Scenes that end up on the cutting room floor end up on the cutting room floor for a reason. You know what I mean? So I think <laughs> I, I think the, the, that version is not the one to watch. I, I would be curious to go back and maybe compare it to the actual version again, see what scenes exactly, you know, changed. But, yeah. you know, we're talking yeah. about a weird movie and people make fun of the, the musical walking down the street sequence in Spider-Man 3. There's oh. a scene in this movie where they literally just have a montage of – scenes of peter parker being happy while you hear bj uh-huh. thomas singing raindrops keep falling on my head and it's yeah wonderful i loved it so much well i i totally again totally forgot that that was in yeah. the movie i don't know if that's an extended edition thing or what but like i'm pretty confident it's in the original yeah. 
and that's why I was like, oh, so the scene in the third movie wasn't as weird as everyone made exactly. it out to be. They just yeah. did it in a different way. Or Raimi was calling back to himself, which <laughs> I, I think is interesting. But yeah, yeah I don't know. I, the <laughs> One other thing I did want to talk about that I, I noticed in this movie was this is just a small aside here. Aunt May's house is the same house they used in the Spider-Verse movie. I don't know if you guys caught that. I did. But like it's huh. it's the same layout. It's got the same backyard. Like I, I just, you know, good hmm. on Sony for hmm. like going back and referencing that and then like the one other thing i also noticed that was in the spider-man movie is like the big above ground subway like when when miles finds peter and they go through the big like we're gonna smash peter's face up a bunch um (laughs) scene that subway line is the same subway line that peter saves all those people on in in the end of the second movie like it's the same above ground like i it's i don't I'm sure that it's not exact, but when I looked at that, they did like a couple of angled shots in the in Spider-Man 2, and I was like, this is Spider-Verse. This wow. is the exact same thing. I thought it was really, really cool. Just a small little thing of Sony being like, yeah, guys, we, we remember those movies, and we appreciate them. So good on the animation team for that. Mm-hmm. But anyways, just total aside there. Do we want to talk about the subway thing, or... We have or to. What? I have... This is, okay. this is okay. an iconic superhero scene. You know, I think... The movie goes bigger than the first one in a lot of good ways. And I think this scene in particular shows it be, it be, it's such an iconic thing where the superhero is unmasked and like everyone around like, you know what? We're going to keep the secret. The city rallies behind Spider-Man. And I think it's been referenced so much that it maybe seems corny, but I got emotional. Uh-huh. I got choked up watching it again. I'm like, it's such a good totally. scene. And again, people always talk about how, New York City can become a character in a movie. And I think this movie kind of does, particularly because of that scene, you know? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, <laughs> watching this whole movie, Kelly and I kept thinking, everybody fucking knows that Peter's Sp- Spider-Man, right? right? Like all the knowing glances, like <laughs> all over the place throughout the whole movie. It seemed like everybody, but Aunt May, even Aunt May, I think knew um, everyone except for like Jake, James Franco's character and Kirsten Dunst, like MJ and and Harry didn't know every and J. Jonah right. Jameson. That yeah. was it. <laughs> <laughs> anyways but no that that scene was it was very very powerful i thought that like i man i've got sorry i've got all sorts of weird little notes here about that scene but mm-hmm. phil lamar being like the dude in the front is always sticks out to me for some reason yeah. like but yeah that that moment is insane because it's it's one peter showing like the strength of a spider like for the first time i think in a long time in these movies yeah and also um just that that new york sense of mind like of, of everybody like kind of being a jerk about things and then being like no no but spider-man's cool like despite everything that's being said spider-man is cool yeah um, i mean yeah, i always appreciate that i i think that you can draw a straight line from this the that scene to the scene in dark knight with the two boats you know what i mean mm-hmm. and it's the mm-hmm. same thing in the dark knight like as much as i like that movie that scene always kind of rings a little bit false because i don't think I you have that sort of sense of community in those scene that, that particular scene. Whereas in this one, it's like because the movie has set itself up to be a little corny, it lands in a way that a more serious movie can't have that same type of scene. Does that makes sense. Yeah, you know. Yeah, and I mean, like Danny in the chat is pointing out like that that line that he's no older than my son. Like, I, I do like the surprise that people have about who Spider Man is and like how old he is and all that kind of stuff. I think Stephanie pointed out like the whole you mess with one of us, you mess with all of us thing. Like there is that sense of like both people like expecting a lot of this character, but also being just genuinely surprised 
by who he actually is. I, I, I always find that to be fascinating. Like, and I was, as I was watching this, I was thinking like, I, it would have been funny to see like a, a, a brutish character being like, Hey, Spider-Man, you can't be on this stuff, but you're going to get us all killed. And then later coming <laughs> back and like protecting him in front of Doc Ock yeah. would have been, uh, you know, could have been fun, but well, yeah, yeah, it is interesting because I, I, well, man, I have a couple points here. So, um, it is interesting. Again, we talked about it briefly in the previous episode. We talked about Spider-Man, how Spider-Man was filmed before September, the events of September 11th and came out after yeah. that. Yeah. You know what I mean? That kind of colors the movie. This movie clearly was written well after that happened. So it's like the scene of the city coming together rings really differently knowing yeah. you know, it was written after September 11th. Mm-hmm. You mm-hmm. also have the idea of the fight scenes in this movie are so much better than the fight scenes in the first one. Like CGI got way better for in two sure. years, apparently like it yeah. sure. looks way better <laughs> And this. There's stage better. There's the whole scene of Doc Ock and Spider-Man fighting on the side of the side of the bank, the side of the building, which is incredible. This yeah. fight scene, you get scared for the people on the train. And it's very rare. I think in a superhero movie to actually feel fear, fearful for the people in, in harm's way. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. They don't usually mm-hmm. address that, you know, you know, you saw we did have a Superman movie where Superman literally hears people screaming in terror because a gas station blows up and literally does nothing to save them. You know, so <laughs> to have Spider-Man, you know, pull people out of the subway and then shoot his web to give them like a thing to land on so they're safe. Like, it's like, oh, that that whole scene, like, I think is so super heroic in a way that very rarely gets shown in films. It really does feel mm-hmm. like a comic book fight in the best possible way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I really, I don't know. I feel like the action in this movie worked really, really well. I mean, I, I hundred percent agree with you. Like, there is a lot of Spider-Man. Like, I always think of the. There's an issue of Dan Slott Spider-Man run. You know, say what you will about Dan Slott. There's a run that or an issue that he did where it's called like No One Dies, right? right? Yeah. And I always, always, always think of that issue when it comes to like the stresses and like the amount of. The, the the lengths that Spider-Man will go to save someone, not to say that other superheroes don't, but like I think it's <clears throat> it feels more strenuous on someone like Spider-Man who feels so very close to a real person. A lot of the times like he's dealing with all of these real world problems. And so to see a movie like this where you see Spider-Man like really going out of his way to try to save people and help people in these really dire moments is is always like uplifting. It reminds me of like how every single Spider-Man story can has that potential to like uplift you and make you feel good. And this movie, I think totally nails that. Like Spider-Man is a very hopeful superhero. He's, he gives people hope in not, and not in the same way that like spider or Superman does, you know, like Spider-Man is so like down to earth as a human. It, it almost like behooves you to root for him because he's just another person like you with a little bit more than you. At least that's how it feels. You know, it looks like that on the surface. Cause he's just like a regular guy. I mean, there, there's, and a, I love that. There's a lot of time in this movie spent knocking Peter down a peg. I mean, he's such totally. a fucking loser in this movie. He's the <laughs> ultimate underdog. The movie starts with him getting fired. I mean, that's how the movie right. starts. So right. and it, it gets worse from there. Can I can yeah. I just point out really quick, really wild. I noticed that there's like six different stand-up comedians in this movie. Yeah. Did you guys notice that at all? Yeah. Or is that just me? Okay. That's all. Just random aside. The Phil Lamar thing and then a bunch of just like anytime there was like a one-off speaking role, they're like, yeah, let's just fill it in with a stand-up comedian of the time. And I was like, what the fuck is happening? Anyways, um, <laughs> sorry. I, my notes in my mind are all over the place. Like I want to talk about how yeah. James Franco is a big baby in this whole movie. But uh, <laughs> well, if you guys have something else to bring up, let's go there. I just uh, very, so we don't miss it. Um, one thing we always make sure we talk about on the movie club 
episodes is to talk about how successful or not the film captures, you know, captures or mimics the feeling of a comic. You know what I mean? Um, mm-hmm. And I've already hinted at it, but I do think the Raimi films, at least the first two especially, really do capture the look and tone of the Ditko comics. You know, and a lot of that does come from Spider Man being and Peter Parker being the perpetual loser. You know, I mean, sure. um, I mean, Brian, as someone who just read a bunch of those comics, how do you feel about that? Yeah, no, Paul is one hundred percent correct. It's (laughs) it's very much of like he's that that lovable doofus, you know, the guy (laughs) who yeah can't can't win for losing in his day to day life, but when he's Spider Man, then you know it it seems for a minute like he's going to be okay. Yeah. And I think mm-hmm. I think the the comedy comes through. I mean the way that Stan Lee sort of does the dialogue in those issues, like there is a sort of a very strong comedic sense. You get that in these films. The fight scene that I mentioned when they're fighting down the side of the building at the bank, like that looks like a Ditko comic. Um so yeah, I think <laughs> for better or for worse, Raimi's influence is so tied to those particular comics that as a fan of those comics I really like it, but also it might date some of the stuff to a particular time or to a particular um, interpretation of the character, you know? Sure. I mean, Peter Parker using a payphone made me feel <laughs> like this was, this took place in an old age. Uh. <laughs> it, it does do that thing. You know, the, the thing that Tim Burton did in Batman or um, the Richard Donner did in the first Spy- Superman movie, where it takes place in the contemporary time it came out, but also in a previous time. So like Superman looks like a movie that was filmed both in the 1930s and the 1970s. And this looks right. like a movie that was filmed in the 1960s and the you know early 2000s. So right, that, yeah, Saint was saying that in the chat there about <laughs> it's so bizarre. Yeah. Well, I guess my my last question and thought about this is: Do you guys think that this movie, like along with Spider Man One, helps shape future superhero movies? I listed some of them that came out after this, some of the big ones, like Spider Man. Spider Man One came out in 2002, so we have the Hulk that came out in 2003, X Two came out in 2003, Hellboy came out in 2004, <laughs> then Spider Man Two, uh, Constantine in 2005. This is the Keanu Reeves movie, Elektra in 2005. <laughs> I didn't even know that that came out. I totally forgot. Mm -hmm. Um, Fantastic Four, Sin City, V for Vendetta, all in 2005. And then 2006, 300, Superman Returns, X-Men The Last Stand, RIP, Fantastic Four, Rise of the Silver Surfer, Ghost Rider, and Spider-Man 3 all came out in 2007. Like, like, what the fuck was happening with comic (laughs) books, movies? (laughs) I will say, again, I've already made this point, but I will reiterate it uh, forever. The cows come home, so to speak. At least all those movies, whether they're good or not, sort of look and feel different. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, sure, sure. Superman Returns was not a good movie, and I, but at least it looked and felt different than every other Superman movie that's come out since then. You know, so sure. Uh, there was an attempt, obviously, to cash in on the popularity of both X Men and Spider Man, and I think maybe in the rush to get product out into theaters, you have a lot of missteps. I'm looking at you, Electra. But you also have <laughs> a lot of, you know, a lot of distinct looking and feeling films. And, you know, the fact that there is a Hellboy movie and it's fucking great, you know, is kind of a, a miracle because of the success of uh, superhero movies and comic influence movies at that time. Yeah, it's sure. definitely the the era of throwing everything at the wall to see what sticks. Yeah, right. The one movie that I didn't list that was on this list is the animated TMNT unofficial <laughs> sequel to Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 3 um, from the 90s. Uh, mm. It's fantastic, but 
<clears throat> again, it's an animated film and I didn't listen to animated films um, just because like there is a time and place to have that discussion about sure. the animated films. Um, but I was yeah, most like doesn't think that animated films are cinema. So. Listen, anime isn't real. OK, <laughs> <laughs> that's that's a bold. Wow. Listen, you could put that on a fucking t-shirt, all right? Uh, No. um, Like anime isn't real rap. I don't know. I just thought it was interesting to look at these movies because you can definitely see like the ups and downs of things. Um, Obviously, you know, say what you will about the movie 300. Like it was a it was a huge success. Um, And that's like the the beginning of the, the, you know, I think compared with Sin City, it's the beginning of like the grim universe that is Zack Snyder's life. But (laughs) You know, things, but compared to Superman Returns, which I felt like was trying to capture the feeling of that, that 70s Superman, yeah. but in a modern day in a lot of ways, um, next to something like X Men The Last Stand, which was just like, <laughs> let's just, we have these actors just put them in a movie, yeah. um, and, or Fantastic Four, Rise of the Silver Surfer, again, similar kind of thing. It's, it's interesting to see like how things develop because I feel like we don't get a real, quote unquote banger of a film until 2008 with iron man one like we have four i think after spider-man 2 there isn't a solid superhero movie um until 2008 like four years we had this weird just like rut of films Mm -hmm. and then iron man comes out and it's like changing the game so it's interesting i just have to yeah danny did just point out in the chat that batman begins came out in 2005 Oh, I don't know how I missed that. Yeah. My apologies. Um, I don't count that one because it's anime. <laughs> yeah. uh, <laughs> what? <laughs> no, but again, like, you- I don't know what anime is. Rap. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, I think I just missed it on the web- yeah. the website that I was going through. So my apologies. Um, but and go ahead, Paul. You could you could point to that one to say you know I. I obviously have criticisms of the Christopher Nolan Batman films, but again, it was a very distinct and different feeling film than every other Batman movie before it. Um, You could probably point to Christopher Nolan, much like Sam Raimi is a director with a very distinct style that is bringing to it. It definitely feels like a Christopher Nolan movie that happens to have Batman in it. You know what I mean? Right. Right. uh, These other films are talking about. So yeah, I think that's a good point. I, on one hand, I will always critique these sort of, cookie cutter feel of the MCU movies, but having a plan, if you're going to do sequels, if you're going to set up a franchise definitely pays off as opposed to the scattershot approach we saw, you know, in this period we're talking about in the early two thousands. So, Oh, I thought you were going to say star Wars. Um, so, uh, (laughs) don't pick it, don't pick it that scab. Yeah. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. (laughs) Yeah. So I guess, I I don't know. I, I still really like my final thoughts, I guess on this is I still really like this movie. I, I thought it was really fun despite the clunkiness and the corniness and everything that I think makes this movie memeable. And I, for lack of a better term, um, all the, like just, just the goofy stuff that happens. It's still very enjoyable. Um, overall from end to end, I think like I was grinning the entire movie. Um, even when I was, grimacing <laughs> you know yeah. what i mean yeah it's it's cheesy and goofy in exactly the right way for a comic book movie yeah right be. right yep yeah i think it totally holds up i think um you could nitpick things about it but if you're able to kind of just step into that world of the world of the film and not think about it too much it's an mm-hmm. absolute thrill ride it's an absolute blast I, I really do love this movie quite a bit so for sure i think your your opinion of the film mike has been vindicated However, the oh rest of that God. song goes. I so. did not <laughs> remember that being the closing song of the movie until it came on. And then I looked at Kelly and I said, this has to happen. And I stood up and sang the whole fucking thing. <laughs> yes, so, yeah. <sighs> yeah, vindicated. 
Um, Brian, do you feel vindicated? <laughs> uh, I mean, sometimes I go back and listen to that album just to just to remind myself what life was like back in those days. <laughs> it was uh, it was a different time, man. <laughs> it, re- it really was. It really was. Um, well, cool. I guess I thank you guys for doing this episode. This was a lot of fun. I'm glad that we watched Spider-Man 2. I'm so happy that we watched Spider-Man 2. And I can't wait for what the next movie club is going to be. Um, I mean, the poll is up right now. I'm going to just, I'm going to pull that up really, really quick and see if I can talk and also type at the same time. (laughs) But um, yeah, so like, so I I will just say, I'll I'll plug the show again. Again, if you're not subscribed to the Patreon, uh, we do do, um, we do do over there. And it's uh, Mm. the RSB movie club four times a year so far i think we've been able to keep on schedule and every episode we have a poll so you the listener can decide which film you get to hear us ramble about for about you know an hour and a half two hours over there at the rc movie club and we this month i forgot it's an all alan moore month so um i don't know why i said that because i don't think constantine is an alan moore story so what the fuck is going on in my head no one corrected me (laughs) just want to say that constantine uh 2005 v for vendetta 2005 league of extraordinary gentlemen 2003 those are the three movies that we're voting on right now so if you sign up the five dollar to your hire uh you can vote on this uh this poll and you can help us pick what we're going to talk about in november for irc please Club please go and vote for uh leave extraordinary gentlemen no, just no, no. to make just to make paul watch it <laughs> no <laughs> no i th- so the reason the reason i picked constantine was because the elmar created that character so there's the oh he did so, yeah. right okay so it is okay then never mind i'm not wrong you're wrong paul uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh okay well with that we're and we could and we could week's... spend the entire episode arguing whether it's constantine or constantine that'll be the yeah, whole yeah, two yeah. hours so yeah that's actually going to be the whole episode um <laughs> when we do it because constantine's in the lead right now um but you can change that by going and voting uh next week's topic is going to be a, a comic book tea pairing episode we're we're it's i don't know kate and kara came up with this idea i and kate mailed me like a stack of tea so i'm going to be drinking tea all next week and trying to pair it with various comics and then we're going to talk about it next week um like i said with kate uh lamphere and kara it's going to be a blast uh remember you can always follow us on twitter if you want to send us your hot takes about sam raimi's spider-man uh you can follow brian at brian head you can follow paul at ohi Pauly and me at mike rappin and don't forget you can follow the show on twitter and instagram at ircb podcast this episode first aired on patreon and is possible because of our wonderful patrons join today for exclusive series like the ircb movie club saga of saga giant days of our lives and more join now at patreon.com slash ircb podcast and if you haven't already, please rate and review our show. Give us the five stars. You know we work for it. You can do that on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us spread the word about the show. You can also join the RSB Discord community to chat about comics and much, much more. And you can listen to the episodes live as we record. Check the link in the show notes. It'd also help us a lot if you would talk to your friends about the show and maybe mention next time you top, stop at your local comic shop. Infinity Shred is the best band in the universe. They do all of our music, including all the new music, which is stupendous. Uh, Xander is a very cool guy who makes us sound extra cool every single week he edits the show. I want to say thanks to Paul and Brian. Thanks to Stephanie and Saint and Danny for hanging out with us in the chat live on Discord. We appreciate you. Thank you to everyone out there who listens to the show. And until next time, comics are good, and so are you. Comics are good.